You're listening to Ready, Set, Israel, bringing you the latest out of Israel and the Middle East every week. Let's get into it. We're tracking a deal solidified this past weekend between Israel and her allies in the Eastern Mediterranean. After a summit in Cyprus, Israel and Greece signed a 20-year agreement that's going to provide the Hellenic Air Force with flight simulators and training aircrafts. So let's backtrack. This regional relationship between Greece, Cyprus, and Israel was initially formed to cement the energy relationships of these Mediterranean partners, but also to place checks on aggression coming out of Turkey. At the announcement of this deal this past weekend, Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi reiterated the necessity to prevent a nuclear Iran, making it very clear that the energy relationship has now taken on a strategic nature, with Iran and Turkey continuing to pose regional threats. So what was particularly noteworthy about this deal was the newest addition to this partnership, the United Arab Emirates. Turkey and the UAE have been engaged in proxy wars for the past decade, opposing each other in regional conflicts like in Libya, Syria, and Yemen. This is RSI's Gianna Michelson, and this week, I am so excited to welcome Sarit Zahavi, CEO and co-founder of ALMA, an organization that focuses on Israel's security challenges to its northern border. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Sarit, first, I want to ask you about why these countries are bonding together strategically. What common geopolitical interests do Israel, Cyprus, and Greece have? And what does the UAE's introduction into the mix mean for the evolving alliance? So I, I think that uh, we can speak first about issues of collaboration. The Avram Accords actually open an opportunity to discuss with various players and to bring them together and to create uh, something that is uh, common for all of us. We speak about prosperity, about energy, the capability of the UAE, for example, to export its energy, whether it's oil or gas, from the UAE all the way through Israel and then to the Mediterranean, which have to pass uh, through either Cyprus or Greece or both. Uh, the second is uh, prosperity in other fields, tourism, food providers, health, uh, cooperation around COVID, uh, and of course, security, which is very important because we share the same interests and the same um, uh, worries and troubleness from the Iranians on the one hand and Turkey on the other hand. And all of this uh, brings us to the same table, hoping that more countries will join in eventually. Right, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, speaking of the threat that both Turkey and Iran poses, so some do contend that Turkey poses an even greater threat to the UAE and other countries than Iran does, especially after the crippling impact of COVID-19 and the Trump era sanctions. So even Mossad leader Yossi Cohen a couple of years back did warn that quote, Iranian power is fragile, but the real threat is from Turkey. So first of all, do you agree with this statement? And in general, what threats does Turkey pose to all four of these countries? And what reactions might we see from Turkey in response to this growing quadratic alliance? I'm not sure in which context the, uh, Yossi Cohen said what he said, but uh, in general, I think that each of us has a different worries from different countries, and I will explain. Uh, Cyprus is definitely worried about Turkey because half of Cyprus is under the control of Turkey. Uh, Greece is definitely worried about Turkey since there is this dispute between Turkey and Greece about the Mediterranean and areas that should have uh, potential for gas. Uh, I think as for Israel, our main worry is Iran and not Turkey, though Turkey became a problem and kind of a rival, not an enemy, but a rival since Erdogan came to power 
and all the uh, warm relationship that we had with Turkey in the past completely disappeared in right. the past two decades. When we speak about the UAE, all you have to do is look at the map. Iran is much closer to, to the UAE than Turkey. So I think that the UAE is worried about Iran much more that, than it is worried about Turkey. And Turkey is also, again, it's also can be uh, a source for uh, doubts, troubles, but not a, a threat, the, the same threat that Iran poses to the UAE. The fact that Erdogan chose uh, since very early age uh, to support the Muslim Brotherhood probably doesn't give uh, peace and calm to the UAE. But uh, Iran is following a radical ideology as well, and it is actually bordering the UAE, so that's why it is much more dangerous. The Iranian involvement in Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Yemen, uh, even in Saudi Arabia itself, and its aspirations to Jordan, all of that pose a great threat uh, to the region's peace in general. Right, that's a good point. I think we see how far Iran's reach has gone across the Middle East. Um, and I wanna go back to something that you mentioned before. So we spoke previously about how this alliance, alliances like this are often formed in the face of a threat of war, but this alliance is a little bit unique because there are a lot of other reasons that it was formed in the first place. So could you speak a little bit about that? Look, Israel has uh, two main things to offer to the bordering, uh, to the neighboring countries in the region, in the Middle East in general. One is innovation and the second is location. And I think uh, in these uh, two things, we are key uh, players. And uh, this goes to many, many aspects that I've mentioned uh, previously. And I think now we have an opportunity to create, I'm, I'm not sure it's an alliance, but to create a new relationship, to create multi-dialogue in the region that will contradict the negative dialogue that Iran poses here, that will bring hope that uh, we can do things together. And I think this conference that ended up with a huge agreement a very specific agreement, by the way, not an alliance between Israel and Greece. No, it's a very specific agreement about the Air Force. But this conference has also a symbolic meaning like the Cyprus uh, representative said, which means that it's a starter. It's a starter for, for a multi-dialogue in various issues of collaboration between four countries and more. And I hope that in future conferences, we would see Egypt and Sudan and maybe Morocco and Jordan joining on board. And all of that will uh, empower all of us to be capable of facing radical ideologies from either Turkey or Iran. Right, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of times when we talk about the issues in the Middle East, there's always um, alarm bells ringing and threats from war here and there. So it's nice to hear a little bit of sentiment about the collaboration that we see between a lot of these countries coming together. So Sari, thank you so much for your insight and thank you for coming on the podcast. We hope to have you here again soon. Thank you very much. Hope to see you soon in Israel. While that breath of fresh air from Sari was definitely much appreciated, there have been a lot of developments out of the country that is probably Israel's biggest threat. Let's go to Simone Stoyan with the latest developments out of Iran's nuclear program, American sanctions, and Israeli efforts to thwart Iran's nuclear ambitions. Thank you, Gianna. The situation between Iran and Israel has 
only been intensifying. The Israeli Security Cabinet met this Monday for the first time in two months to discuss the Iranian nuclear threat as the United States and Iran appear to be headed towards reviving the 2015 nuclear deal, which the former U.S. administration pulled out of in 2018. Israeli intel agencies fear that the United States wants an Iran deal at all costs, despite calls for a longer and stronger deal that would meet Israeli concerns. This past week, in a rare occurrence, Israel all but claimed credit for the recent blackout at the Iranian Natanz nuclear facility, which Iran dubbed as, quote, nuclear terrorism. Israel fears the Biden administration is rushing to rejoin the 2015 nuclear deal as the United States and Iran continue to engage in indirect talks in Vienna together with European facilitation. Iran has now been confirmed to be enriching uranium at 60%, levels far beyond adherence to the 2015 nuclear deal. After the first security cabinet meeting in over two months, Israel made sure to reaffirm its fierce opposition to a nuclear Iran. Based in Israel, we have political and military expert Elliot Chodoff with us to discuss this issue at length and in depth as we premiere our very first, quote, long form segment in this week's episode. Good morning, Elliot. Thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. So let's jump right into it. Iran's nuclear ambitions are something we discuss very often here on the podcast, but I want to start at the very beginning and provide some brief background to some of our listeners who may not be entirely clear about the JCPOA, or as it's colloquially known, the Iran deal. The Israeli government is fervently against the Iran deal, and that has always been abundantly clear right from the start. However, many argue that the deal appears to have been effective at slowing down the Iranian nuclear program. If this is the case, Elliot, what aspects of the deal have garnered the most opposition from the Israeli government and security establishment, and why? Well, Simone, let me start with with something that you said. It slows down their process. It it doesn't stop it. The worst, or one of the worst parts of the deal is the so-called sunset clauses, which basically tell the Iranians, okay, if you hold off for this number of years, seven, eight, ten, depending on the paragraphs, then after that, you're free and clear. Now, since most of us plan on being alive for more than the next seven to 10 years, pushing it down the road that short a period and then saying after that, everything's fine is simply a a non-starter from the Israeli position. Um, On top of that, the, um, the inspection what is called the inspection regime, in other words, the, the clauses that involve inspection of the Iranian sites were very weak. They were very loose. They allowed the Iranians essentially to self-inspect. Um, and, and in and of itself, that also had no real value as a restrictive component. And two other parts of it, one is that it, it had no clause whatsoever about development of ballistic missiles in other words, delivery systems, which are part and parcel of the nuclear weapons program. In other words, a major part of what concerns Israel wasn't even part of the deal because the deal dealt only with the nuclear aspects and not the delivery aspects. And most importantly, the deal completely ignores the Iranian um, ambition, not only to control the Middle East, but outright to destroy Israel. And really that that's kind of the starting point. If you don't address the fact that Iran is utterly, thoroughly dedicated to the annihilation of Israel, the rest of the deal is kind of meaningless. 
So to follow up, as mentioned earlier, the International Atomic Energy Association, or the IAEA, has confirmed that Iran is now enriching uranium to 60% purity. Under the Iran deal, Iran was limited to enrich uranium up to 3.67%. So clearly this is a massive jump. And just for further context to our listeners, uranium enriched above 90% is considered to be weapons grade. However, some have pointed out that the real worrying development would be for Iran to start making serious inroads on the development of the detonator mechanism, which would be estimated to take them as little as two years. Enriching uranium is seen as an easily reversible move since the enriched uranium could simply be sold and Iran's breakout timetable would then be reset, so to speak. Given these points, what can we expect Israel to do to prevent a nuclear Iran? Israel's working as best it can to delay it for as long as possible. And we'll talk about what happened this past week, but this is sort of, it's an ongoing process that that has been going on for years. Um, I don't think that anybody here really believes that any of what Israel has been doing will ultimately succeed. To come back to something I said earlier, pushing it down the road is one thing, ending it is not something that's going to happen under this, under the Iranian system as it is today. So I presume that part of your question is what happens after all of these processes fail? And the answer is that Israel has committed for survival reasons to say, we will not permit a nuclear Iran. And at that point, I think we're going to see Israeli military, uh, a military operation that cancels the Iranian nuclear project not in the way that we were able to do with the Iraqis or with the Syrians, where one building was sufficient, uh, but canceling it in the sense of punching enough holes in it that again, it pushes it way down the road again until God forbid, we have to do it again. And I guess we'll have to see what other countries potentially help Israel with this, how much of this Israel has to do alone. So going back to the topic of the Natanz blackout, unnamed intelligence sources have communicated to Israeli media that the Mossad was responsible This does send the message that Israel is no longer trying to hide its efforts to impede Iran's nuclear ambitions, unlike in the past when Israel tried not to acknowledge the Cold War that it is so obviously fighting. As you alluded to, the United States has responded that all of the chatter about Israel's alleged involvement in the blackout needs to stop and warned that it's dangerous and embarrassing to the U.S. as it attempts to negotiate a return to the nuclear deal with Iran. All this seems to indicate that this chatter was almost certainly intentional and had its intended effect on the U.S. What effects these developments have on the U.S.-Israel relationship, and can we perhaps expect any change in U.S. negotiations with Iran moving forward? So first of all, I don't think it'll have a huge effect on the U.S.-Israel relationship. I think this is a solid, deeply institutionalized relationship. Uh, it can be better and worse. Don't don't get me wrong. There's there's an upper I'll call it an upper layer. Um, who's in the White House makes a difference, as we've seen. And I don't want to get into the American politics of it, but from one administration to the next, and we'll leave it at that. Um, but beyond below that level, in other words, deeper into it, the American-Israeli relationship is built on mutual benefits, mutual uh, beliefs, mutual strategy. We're, we're very, very tied into each other, not just militarily and not just politically. Uh, let me just throw something out as a, as, just a, as a point. The largest private employer in Israel 
is Intel, okay? So separating America from Israel is not so simple, even if such a decision were, you know, were brought down from, from above. Um, every American aircraft, every aircraft produced in America has Israeli technology in it. I'm, I'm sort of gliding into the BDS question, but but this is this is also part of why the American-Israeli relationship is not just based on an American a president's you know say stroke of a pen kind of thing. It has an impact on American policy because America really does want to get back into the agreement. Anything that that raises the the tension level between Iran and a close friend and ally of America makes that agreement that much much that much more complicated. So. They would rather we didn't do it. They would rather we trust them and let them work it all out for us. Um, we're kind of not seeing it that way because first of all, the, the nuclear gun is pointed at our heads and you can trust others to take care of your only up to a point. Um, to quote a one of the um, leaders of the field of international relations, who we don't normally quote in, in sort of pro-Israel company, John Mearsheimer, um, in one of his books, he wrote that when a state dials 911, nobody answers. In other words, if you, if you don't take care of yourself, don't call on somebody else to do it for you. So th this creates tension between friends. Uh, and so the, the, I think it's a natural tension, but I don't think it's gonna have a deep, a deep effect. One last question. And this is actually one we have asked you in the past in our very first episode in the context of Iran allegedly sinking an Israeli-owned vessel in the Gulf of Oman in March. Do these recent developments together signify a new escalation in fighting between Iran and Israel, or is it still simply a continuation of the same exchange we've been seeing for years now? It, it's not qualitatively different. There is a quantitative difference. We've, we, the Iranians and Israel, Iran and Israel have been at war, I mean, technically at war since 1979. We've been in a shooting war, certainly for the past five or six years, but at a, at a, at a low intensity level and, and not so much directly. And I say not so much because there's been some direct as well, uh, but it's been constantly escalating. Now, part of that escalation or much of that escalation, I would say, has to do with two things. One is the Iranian threat to Israel is becoming greater and greater, which means we are stepping up our actions to push back against a greater and greater threat. And the second is that Iran is getting more and more confidence, particularly, I hate to say it, with the new American administration, uh, where they feel they can get away with more. And here, I'll, 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 let me add another point to that, that I want to make this sound like the Biden administration is necessarily soft as opposed to a hard prior Trump administration. The minute the Biden administration said, we want to go into negotiations, the Iranians who know very well how to negotiate did what any good negotiating side will do. And that is they step up tensions, they increase pressure. Uh, this is all part of a sort of a, neg a negotiation process as well. And that way, they can always back down to where they were and say, look how moderate we were. We, we, we diffused the situation that they started in the first place. Uh, so there, as I said, there are a few aspects to it, all kind of pushing in the same direction. But it's not that it's been sort of this kind of a, a jump to a new level. 
it's a simple, it's a continuing gradual increase that we've been seeing over the years. Well, thank you so much for your time. And that's My right, said Israel's Elliot Chodoff. Now on to Jillian Fish with our last story. Quick interlude before we move on to the next segment. There have been key developments in the aftermath of the Israeli elections that occurred after the recording of our upcoming election segment. Specifically, Yamina Party Chairman Naftali Bennett stated on Wednesday that if Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu cannot build a coalition, then Bennett will try to form a unity government himself without Netanyahu. Further, Netanyahu condemned Bennett's statement and claimed that Bennett already cut a deal with Yesh Atid Party Chairman Yair Lapid to be Prime Minister of a left-wing government. That's our update and we hope you enjoy the rest of our episode. The push to build a coalition to form a government and avoid another Israeli election took a new twist. On Monday, members of the Islamist party Ra'am pulled a last-second surprise move to block Benjamin Netanyahu from gaining control of the Arrangements Committee, which controls the Knesset's legislative agenda until a government is formed. Following the March 23rd elections, Netanyahu was tasked by Israeli President Reuven Rivlin with forming a government, which he has failed to do thus far. Opposition efforts working to block Netanyahu's path to a new government and the premiership, which culminated in Monday's development, have included a push by Yeshatid Chairman Yair Lapid for the formation of a unity government of, quote, Zionists and patriots that would include three right-wing parties, Yamina New Hope and Yisrael Beitenu, two centrist parties, Yeshatid and Blue and White, and two left-wing parties, Labor and Meretz. Lapid expects that Rivlin will give him the mandate if Netanyahu fails to form a coalition by May 4th. Yet Rivlin has indicated that he may send the mandate directly back to the Knesset, giving the legislature 21 days to agree on a candidate supported by 61 MKs. Other efforts to break the political gridlock include a new initiative by right-wing party leaders to introduce a special direct election for the premiership, blocking Yeshati chairman Yair Lapid and preventing a fifth election, but that proposal has proven difficult to pass. With us today to discuss all this political jockeying is Chief Political Correspondent for the Jerusalem Post, Gil Hoffman. Thanks for joining us, Gil. Pleasure being with you. Gil, many interesting ideas were being floated regarding how Netanyahu could reach the majority that he needs to form a government, including courting outside support from Ra'am. Mansour Abbas, the head of Ra'am, was extremely careful until now to appear open to any potential government bloc, even with the religious Zionism party, having all along condemned Ra'am as anti-Zionists and supporters of Palestinian terror, and even now stating that he still would theoretically support a Likud-led coalition if he felt it met the interests of Arab-Israeli society. But was this last-second decision by Ra'am to vote against Netanyahu proof that Ra'am is not actually serious about joining Bibi, or was it that Yair Lapid simply made a stronger offer of legislative positions to Abbas? Or could it have been that, as Abbas says, the incitement of the religious Zionist party was Ra'am's primary motivation to minimize the influence of Likud and its allies? What's really going on here? You've asked a lot of questions all together there, and I'll, I'll try to simplify it. Netanyahu's people screwed up, Jillian. You know, the art of politics is keeping all people happy at the same time, or at least the people you can't take for granted. And there were two people who couldn't be taken for granted. One was Naftali Bennett, uh, and the other one is uh, Mansour Abbas. Both of them are political kingmakers because they could go with either side. And um, they, Netanyahu invested a lot of time in Netanyahu yesterday. He didn't invest time in Abbas. Uh, Abbas was taken for granted and he can no longer afford to be taken for granted. Um, Netanyahu needs to coddle both of them and win the support of both of them uh, to be able to form a government. 
uh, and even then he would also need to find a way still to persuade the far-right religious Zionist party to be able to sit in the government that relies on a boss and uh, that appears to be completely impossible because there's no politician who has answered a question more firmly in one direction than I've seen in 20 years covering politics than the leader of the religious Zionist party, Mr. Smotrich, in ruling out any government whatsoever that relies on Abbas in any way. You briefly mentioned uh, Naftali Bennett, um, who is obviously the other potential kingmaker here. He's the leader of the right-wing Yamina party with seven seats, and he's demanded that he be made prime minister in exchange for his mandate. Meanwhile, Likud whip Mickey Zohar seems to have admitted defeat, stating Netanyahu will lead the opposition. So now that it looks like Yair Lapid will probably get the next crack at forming a government, can we say that Lapid's offer for a rotational plan for prime minister between himself and, and Bennett as part of a wide unity government is a real serious possibility? Yes, a very serious possibility. It, it's been uh, the strongest possibility since the day after election when it became clear that there were 61 seats, one by 62, one by parties that would rather have Netanyahu not remain prime minister. Already then that day, I started writing about how the anti-Netanyahu coalition uh, was already starting to get into high gear, cooperating. That includes people from all across the political map together. You've got right-wing parties, centrist parties, left-wing Zionist parties, left-wing anti-Zionist parties, all together united against Netanyahu, against the coronavirus, in favor of having an economy that's functional. Uh, they have enough in common to be able to function uh, not only for a few months, which we wouldn't take for granted nowadays, uh, but uh, even for a few years. As an Israeli, can you speak to the lasting effects of so many elections in such a short span of time on the feeling of civic duty? For the average Israeli, how much more of this can Israelis really take? I'm surprised they took even two elections in, the, in a matter of months there, Julian. It's absolutely reprehensible that our politicians have put us through this agony uh, of uh, wasting the uh, public's money on going to uh, election after election, proving Einstein's theory of insanity and doing the same thing over and over and over and over again and expecting a different result. And there hasn't been a different result. Um, they need to stop serving themselves and start serving the people. Um, and uh, right now, the people of Israel, I, a lot of them couldn't care less what kind of government we'll have just as long as we finally have a government. And, uh, and I'll add just personally, um, I uh, speak for Hasbro Fellowships groups, uh, extolling Israeli democracy as one of the top selling points of Israel on North American college campuses. And uh, it's a little embarrassing uh, that we haven't been able to get our act together for a couple years now. Um, and I'm looking forward to uh, Israeli democracy going back to being a positive, to being a selling point um, with the kind of stability that uh, I hope that we'll finally have soon uh, one way or another. Thank you so much for that much needed update, Gail. And Thank you so much to everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode powered by Hasbro Fellowships and make sure to follow us at Ready Set Israel on all of our social media platforms to keep up with the latest news about our podcast. Until next Thursday, that's Ready Set Israel.